I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity, auth, versioning, and more. All right. Thanks for listening to API Intersection Podcast. We're here today with Dilip Krishnan, currently at Oracle, but Dilip's been uh, a lot of interesting places and more importantly, done has done a lot of interesting stuff in kind of the API space, notably with his time at InfoQ as an editor. Also, my co-host today is Anna, one of my co-workers at Stoplight. Anna, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm Anna Doherty. I am the Product Marketing Manager at Stoplight a very new uh, role at Stoplight, but really excited to spread the word. Dilip, anything else interesting you want to tell us about yourself before we start peppering you with questions? No, I'm happy to chat. I mean, I've been in the API and integration space for maybe close to the life of my career, I guess, 15, 20 years. I think I take pride in calling myself a Rastafarian, if you if you will. It can be polarizing in terms of getting people either on your side or away from you. But I'm really passionate about using the web for, for the properties it gives, the benefits that it just natively gives you and all the things that Roy Fielding put out there. So that's where I'm coming from. The gray in my beard usually shows it if you're watching the video version for listeners. But I've been around doing this stuff a long time, too. And What's funny is when we kind of said, you know, who do we want to be guests? I had you on my list and I realized when I started looking at some of the stuff you'd written, it was from 10 years ago. <laughs> and you've done more since then, but it was like particular pieces that you had written back then that I was like, oh, I've had this on my list. This is somebody I'd like to meet and know more about. And you ended up as an editor at InfoQ and it seemed like that was kind of your wheelhouse was this sort of API bucket. So what kind of took you down that road and what motivates you to kind of do all this developer community and writing stuff? So I've been always passionate about integration problems. I started just link blogging, right? That was that was a thing 15 years ago. Like blog interesting things that you find on the internet and collect it in a, in a list of links and then share it with everybody. So I was doing that fairly regularly. And then Stefan Delkoff, I mean, he's pretty well-known in the community for his thought leadership in REST. And basically, starting from even before that, from SOA, and how, how that transitioned into something using the REST architecture. So I caught his attention, and he figured it'll be a great idea for me to join the InfoQ team and participate in the the SOA vertical of that. I mean, it has different things, right? Like Java development enterprise architecture, .NET development. One of them, one of those pillars was SOA. So that's how I got interested in writing. I, I really love writing because as a software developer, I'm in quite an introvert. But when I'm writing, it, it's easy. You don't have to worry about your inhibitions and you just write what you what you know about, what you care about. So that's how I got into that. And I really enjoyed it for quite a while. And then job pressures just took over. It's really hard if, you, if you're not able to give 100% to your writing. So I stopped working on, on InfoQ uh, content maybe close to 10 years ago. So, But the relationships and the community interactions that you get from it is just amazing. So especially in the space that I'm interested in. So I loved it. 
I was actually just sharing some Richard Feynman quotes with our team the other day. My favorite being that the ultimate test of your knowledge is your capacity to convey it to another. I love like how much you learn in teaching things. That is how you learn. And I can totally resonate with uh, losing touch with writing. It's uh, why I end up doing you know lazy stuff like podcasting. <laughs> I can still share and get ideas out. You know, <laughs> it's not really that easy that you claim it is. Uh, I mean, podcasting is quite an art as well. Keeping people engaged in audio format is not easy as well. So kudos for you guys to start it. I have a question for you on that topic, Dalip. What advice do you have to developers who are interested in sharing their knowledge and what skills could they develop to be better writers? First, just take topics that you really care about. I mean, don't write for the sake of writing. If you really care about something, just go deep into it and pick some some easy like small sliver of thing that you want to write about. And then once you do that, the idea is just put something on paper, just get get your outline out there and then refine it so that it's the most succinct form of communication that you can deliver to, to the audience. And then, I mean, that itself takes a, a long while. You can write a lot of things, but writing good content is really not easy, especially in a technical space. It's definitely not easy. So it's also a good muscle to build. If if you want to be an individual contributor in any organization, for example, you don't have to really manage people to, to lead. Writing is a, is a form of communication where it's an easy way for you to influence people. And of course, now there's more forms of those content that you can produce, like audio, like video content, Twitch, and this, this humongous number of platforms that you can express yourself. But writing is also equally important. There are people who, who love to read really quickly and skim articles, and there's people who love to hear. So there's different ways that people interact with content, and, and writing is one of the important ones too. So yeah, that's definitely a skill, and especially if if you want to communicate in organizations to build consensus on things that you want to work on. That's, that's a really important skill to build, to actually influence people, influence peers around you, and developers around you. Especially if you're an introvert, right? Got to be able to express yourself. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I often coach kind of growing developers that your technical leadership is often defined by the the size of your sphere of influence, right? Rather than like the org chart may not make much difference. It's really who can you motivate and inspire and that sort of thing. And if you can't get what's in your head out, number one, that shows you haven't mastered the topic, right? And you've got to work on that. And number two, no one's going to know what's in your head. So, well said. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> I found it interesting that you were saying some of this stuff started from kind of the SOA era. And, you know, I guess we all have Martin Fowler to thank for coming up with a, a catchphrase for microservices, right? <laughs> this is totally meaningless, like beautiful way to sell consulting. But what was that kind of transition like for you moving from... And I was in that world too, this kind of SOA and SOAP and all that stuff. And why do you think this is better or different now? These things kind of repeat themselves in over time. Like all these things that were a fad like 20 years ago have become a fad again. Open API is kind of like that. We started out with WSTAR and all the baggage that came with it. The huge amount of overhead that people had to take into consideration. All these different standards for security, for payload description for your schemas and stuff like that. And then they said, no, we like 
the web 2.0 came and people said, we don't want all that. We just want to move fast and move quick and deliver stuff to the web. That kind of gave rise to this pattern of just building quick APIs on, on top of just plain HTTP. This has made it XML over RPC is what that transitioned into at that point of time because there was really good tooling for XML. But that's the logical transition. People just didn't want to be encumbered by all these behemoth tooling that came down on them from these big giant software vendors like IBM, Microsoft, all these people that built all these standards. So that transition was like very seamless because the web took off and the mindshare was like, let's build these quick services on top of HTTP. We have clients that can easily talk. We have tooling for uh, parsing and loading XML. Let's use that. And then two things together. And then you just have your clients consuming and talking to services in no time, right? So that transition really happened. And people were saying, okay, how can we make this better? And, and then we had JSON, which is like the neat, cool trick that Douglas Crockford came up with in JavaScript. So people said, hey, this is even better. There's even less tooling needed. So they just transitioned to HTML, HTTP APIs, and JSON talking over the wires. So JSON RPC came up. And then people said, okay, we're moving along just fine. And then people said, hey, but we don't want this cowboy kind of culture where everybody just slings together some, some messages over the wires. Let's put some standards and let's make this a little bit more consumable. We have all these different services that need to talk to each other. Let's make it a little bit more readable. So that's when the rumblings of, of standardization started happening again. And that's kind of how OpenAPI and, and I think other standards like RAML and stuff like that, they all took over from those kinds of things. It's a little bit unfortunate that uh, none of the core tenets of RESTful architectures took over because the tooling is still still behind in, on those things. But, but yeah, I think to answer your question in a long-winded way, actually, the whole microservices just accelerated a lot of these things to moving towards the, the standardization of these, these representations, if you will. What's interesting to me is, you know, back in the SOA days, you called it out, right? A few companies came up with all these standards and then everybody else used it because, well, they provided the tooling too. The difference for me in the last 10, 15 years has been that all of this came from, the, from just the community at large. So like OpenAPI, right? You got like Tony Tam writes this thing, right? That just comes up with Swagger as a way to spit out documentation and fortuitously becomes something else entirely. And I, I think a lot of the conventions of the norms of what good APIs look like has just come from people using stuff and saying, I like that one, right? And that just feedback has naturally fed it. I think the bit that I'm particularly curious about is, you know, I've been through SOA governance boards as a developer, and it wasn't fun. I didn't relish the weeks and pedantic idiosyncratic discussions I had to have. But when we look now at, at microservices and kind of, you know, these platform initiatives, these, these kind of API programs, and some mechanism of governing that, and OpenAPI certainly seems to be bearing the torch for it, do you see that, you know, there's a difference, or are we just doing the same stupid thing again? It's a lot more lightweight. And I think it goes back to tooling, I think, that makes those collaborations easier. Like 
I think the difference is like earlier you would collaborate on a doc, like a word document and people would have like change tracking on and then say, okay, I'm going to change this field. And then 10 people would review that and people would miss things. It, it, it's just the tooling has evolved from that to some things that are available now, right? Stoplight is one of them that, that enables these tooling that allows you to, to collaborate on these workflows, really. I think the workflows are really important, right? Like how, how you enable these workflows. I think that is the thing. Like, for example, like all these are grassroots development that people found the need for it and built it rather than companies feeling the need to sell something and build it. I think that's the, the difference. But really, if you look at it, like GitHub is another good example, right? Like people were like sharing zip files over email and then GitHub comes along and it dramatically increased the, the collaboration of people. You don't even know, you don't even like share the same time zone, but you just collaborate and comment on things and evolve, evolve your, like Spring Fox is that way, right? We're really lucky to have a lot of contributors and that's another enabler, right? So I think uh, that's the difference. It, it's it's come in full circles, but the tooling is a lot better to, to do that. There's also other flavors of tooling. It's not only the design time tooling, there's also other flavors, but but yeah, we can talk about that too. But, but yeah, I think that's the fundamental difference between the WSDL and like open API, I think that's the, it's just the evolution of where it things technology comes from, right? That's funny. I was just telling Anna earlier, I was bragging on Mike Amundsen. He's my favorite like API historian to always bring us down to earth and remind us there's nothing new, right? Everything's reinvention. Yeah, he's terrific. I love, I love his work. And I think it's just the amount of uh, content that he puts out there to, to still keep this, this, grand vision that Roy Fielding put out is just amazing. So it's difficult to sometimes match that idealism of what rest could have been from a what now 15 year old kind of concept uh, or more into what it is now and what it has to be because, you know, it's like the finite state machine to make all hypermedia possible. It doesn't happen very often, right? <laughs> but the very cool thing is that I don't know if you've heard of this conference called RestFest. And I was part of that, luckily, for like a couple of years. And it was really an unconference, if you will. And the amount of really cool progress you were making at uh, just these hackathons that we had there, I really wish some of those would have just gone into the wild and taken off, if you will. Yeah, I did RestFest, I think, for a year or two. It's definitely a kind of a special environment where they're like there's no agenda everyone just shows up and talks about something that they that they're passionate about and like really novel ideas in there so you mentioned spring fox i'll admit i haven't used i also haven't been kind of in the java world in a while which is where it felt like that kind of started what's that project all about spring is a technology a web framework that is very popular in the java and java ecosystem people build services on on top of spring Spring is also another like path-breaking kind of framework where I don't want to be part of this huge uh, J2EE marketing machine. I want to do something that's very accessible to developers and make people empower people to make changes really quickly. So Spring is born out of that. So what Spring Fox does is it is a library that's coexisting with the Spring services that people work on. And what it does is it 
takes a look at how these services are built and, and introspects using basically code introspection, really. It looks at the code and says, oh, I see that you have a service that you're going to expose as an endpoint. And I see that you can take like name as a parameter or age as a parameter. And then I see that you can you can actually spit out employees, for example, with that particular name and maybe that age as a filter or what have you. So it looks at those those definitions that you build in your services and it makes sense of that and then builds the specification, which is open API in this case. So from that perspective, it is like a code first kind of approach for building your open API definitions. And it's obviously the there's an there's an endpoint you can hit and say, hey, show me all the open API definitions that you have as part of the service, and then it'll will give you back that definition. So that's essentially what it does. But it's very niche and it's very in the Spring ecosystem and it's very in the Java ecosystem as well. So well, with 5,000 stars and appealing to Java and Spring Boot developers, I think that's hardly niche <laughs> in fairness. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got pretty good adoption there. I'm actually very lucky that it got very very popular. Um, I think it kind of rode the, the wave of the popularity of Swagger. So there was nothing in the market that, that did that. So just building on top of that, I think it's been a great learning opportunity in terms of building stuff building libraries in the public, in, in open source, curating that, making sure that people are like, like when it started out, it was pretty rocky, I think. <laughs> like it started out and people were like, what is this? <laughs> like, there'd be a storm of comments saying, oh, this is like really terrible library and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it just takes effort and time to, to commit to, to doing open source. It's very gratifying. At the same time, it takes a lot of time. But yeah, it's kind of a labor of love, if you will. I love this idea of building because there's a problem and you're trying to solve the problem. What advice do you have for people who are kind of trapped in that sort of legacy architecture or they're trapped in, in that backbreaking code? What advice would you have for those teams who want to move to a more modern way of developing? I mean, it's not really easy. I mean, there's no one answer for that, right? Like we're talking about a people problem here. We're not really talking about technology as such. We're trying to see, hey, uh, how do you propose an idea? And how do you change minds? Yeah, it's really hard, right? I mean, just to take a non-technology example, right? Let's say Adele makes a song and she's like totally stoked about it and says, yeah, this is going to be like a number one chart topper. And people just like, nah, that doesn't make sense at all to me. So it's kind of like that, right? Like you don't know, you're just going to put your work out, the best work out out there. Like you're going to propose your ideas and the best one should win. So I think from that perspective, I think from, from an organization perspective, it's really about the leaders making sure that you build a culture of collaboration and celebrating good ideas, right? Like you build that into your organization. It's like, it's not like me as an individual can have the best idea, but definitely the wisdom of the crowd, like at least in the organization, is like, I think we just need to build that culture in the organization. That's really how you bring, bring about that change. Like if 10 people think that working on this legacy, whatever tool that you have, and it takes like five days to get a deployment out. So there's 
only two options. You, you're like happy with your job and you say, okay, I'm, I'm going out on a vacation for five days and come back and check that the deployment is done. Or you come and say, hey, this is just not going to work because, because we're living in the age of the internet and if we keep doing this, we're just going to go out of business. There's obviously grays in the middle, but but you've got to either take those two broad strokes, like either you challenge the status quo or you go with what you have. I think organizations should just encourage challenging the status quo to make things better. And I think that's the way to go. I mean, it's no individual can make that change. That's funny. In the original kind of show description, we had, I was sort of forced one saying we really need to address this culture change topic. And I think everybody kind of gave me the puzzled look like, okay, yeah, I guess. So I think this is our seventh episode. It's come up in every every episode so far when we talk about what does kind of building your API program look like? Inevitably, it's that you're accepting that a lot of things are about to change if you're going to go that route. And to your one point you made that I really love is you said, so there's 10 people that like doing it this way. Everybody else wants to move on is I always see that this turns into a question of how do you make decisions, right? And that the notion, people say, oh, well, we need consensus. Well, consensus just means majority. That's all it means, right? It's just a synonym. You don't have to make everyone happy. Sometimes you got to move on. And to your point, there's a there's an existential crisis embedded in some of these things for companies. And I've you know, been a member of some of those where you go like, wow, if we don't you know move past this, it's not going to be pretty, so... Oftentimes, it's like you have this analysis paralysis. Like, So you have these meetings to have consensus, and then these meetings turn into like weeks and months and just goes on and on. And you just all you ended up doing was talking in those meetings. And I always say bias towards action is, uh, is the way to go. You just plant your, your stake in the ground and you say, this is how I've done it. Now, if you have a better idea, let's let's hear it kind of thing, like a straw man, if you will. Yeah, sometimes just doing an idea, whether or not it's a bad one, is better than doing nothing at all. And then you just learn to iterate fast. So, I mean, without, I guess, bringing it down to earth, right? I mean, there's a lot of kind of pithy stuff that I believe in. It's true. But to speaking to listeners here who are, are going, you know, yeah, I think I want to do all these great things that I hear about on the show. But I'm in a place where, gosh, I don't know how to get started. What do you think like a tangible first step is to kind of building that momentum toward changing the way everything works without tipping the apple cart? That's also another hard problem. We work in hard problems, Dilip. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say starting with values in the organization. I think that's the fundamental thing, I think. Like defining values in your organization makes a big difference. Like I think the famous anecdote from Amazon is that Jeff Bezos said, hey, everything that we build must be built on services. And if it's not built on services, we're not going to ship it. So I think those are the kinds of things, those are the kinds of values, I think, that that drive these kinds of momentum. Like it doesn't have to, you don't have to even do anything. I think defining those values in itself, is just going to make people ask for the question, like, do I want to go down this path? Is it aligning with my values in the organization? If it is, I want to go forward with that. I think just that basic step itself is, a lot of people just get caught up because they don't have that. They just like have all, all these ideas that are like 
there's so many talented developers and everybody has a good idea. It's just making sure that you align it with the values and goals of the organization. I think that is the really fundamental important thing. It's the net, the safety net that you keep for yourself in the organization that says, okay, it's your guardrails. This is where we want to go. If you go off this beaten path, then you're just off on the, off on the grasslands. You're not in the road. So I think I would start with that. I'm pretty sure I've said it before on here, but an organization cannot rise above the constraints of its leadership. Definitely one of the things uh, I believe in. I think this idea that, I don't know, it's 2021. I'm just going to say it like if you're in a place and you don't see momentum happening on, you know, kind of building a more modern API based platform and leadership doesn't get why, take a shot at it, take a run at it, be passionate. And if you get fired for trying, move on because there's plenty of other places that are ready to go right now. I go down this road at every show of like, you know, how do we get started? But I think I'm also, let's presuppose that we have kind of the mandate. And I think we keep hearing that on the show here too, is like, if if you don't have that mandate, that like this is, we're going to be a platform now, we're going to be API powered, then, you know, you either help start it or move on. But let's assume we have that. So in terms of like, how do you do that without chaos breaking loose, right? I mean, we said before, like the cowboy culture thing that kind of happened for a little while there. How do we rein that in? If you really look at the ecosystems around, like whatever ecosystem you take, like I know DevOps is kind of a new practice that's really taking off, but all of those things are pretty much enabled by this whole underlying idea that there's an API for something that you can do. You take even like something like Kubernetes. It's powered by an API that lets you do do things to orchestrate your pretty much your data center, if you will. Like Terraform is another thing. Everything that you do, like in the cloud, for example, everything that you do in maybe like Amazon or or Google or even like Oracle where I work currently, OCI, everything is powered by APIs. So so if you don't do something that that allows you to do automation and agility. It really grants you that that agility to move forward, right? Faster by just, like you don't have to talk to somebody to provision a machine. How much power is that? If when you compare that to like, like even like 10 years ago where you had to go to the system administrator and say, hey, can you please create me a VM? And when can you have that done by? Can we have that by next week? So... Or like the uh, the old guy jokes that you know, I mean, some of the other folks do is like, do you remember driving to the data center at three in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, because <laughs> a cable went bad. Correct. Like, <laughs> I don't miss that. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's like if you if you really have to survive, especially like I think this whole pandemic has accelerated that that whole idea that you need to be able to work remotely. <laughs> I think the fundamental currency of doing being able to do that is an API. So if you don't have a program for that, then you are going to be left behind pretty quickly. So I think a lot of re- leaders realize that, like even DevOps for that matter, like a lot of people are realizing that the power of uh, moving fast and breaking things like how Facebook does it is really powerful. So Yeah, I think it's fair to say that API transformations are almost always coupled with DevOps transformations because you really can't have one without the other, especially if you're breaking out some monolithic application into a series of different pipelines and things. If you're going to do that the old way, it's not going to go fast. 
the people problem aspect of it is. And this whole microservices ties in with that, is that this coordination, this effort of coordination between different teams, different people, like this Conway's law comes into play and says, okay, if you're structured this way, then you have to do it in this way. And so it's all the more reason that uh, you want to limit these areas where you're having these collaboration needs, which don't need to be there. So it just breaks those boundaries. So I think that's the the power of that. You're more agile because of that. Yeah, it's funny. Um, when you look at DevOps and like what it's taken in that side of the world, and you, you look at somebody like Nicole Forsgren and kind of the Western typology and like, you know, PhD level research looking at what are the cultural facets that need to exist to make this happen. The same is true, right? You're talking about changing the way you work. I'm certainly becoming a big subscriber to, the, to that approach. You know, we're starting to use that with our team as well. But this idea that you, you really need to measure and care about culture and that, you know, look for tools to do that. And it's interesting to see that, like, what we learned in the DevOps side of the world in many ways is, is beginning to inform how we might approach, you know, building APIs at scale in general. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to circle back on your Spring Fox thing here. Because you mentioned that you know you you've built a library that sort of is this code first approach, and I'm curious, like you know, as you've seen, yeah, at least I feel like, and I certainly have a biased opinion. It seems like there's more and more kind of direction toward design first. What have you seen in the kind of that change, or is code first still kind of prevalent in your mind, or you know, is there a right or wrong here? So I can tell you what I feel about it. I know that API first is really gaining a lot of popularity because you have upfront collaboration before you even write a piece of code, right? Like just, you just say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And then you can collaborate and say, oh, I don't like that, but I like that. So you have this, sure. I'm going to stop you there because you said you used a different term, which is API first. You didn't use design first, which is okay. But for me, this is another one of those like, you know, Fowler made up microservices and then we had to figure out what it meant. I feel like API first is still somewhat in like, what does that mean? So what does API first mean for you? I meant to say design first, but API first is is just this whole, goes back to this Amazon idea of service first. Like the top of the pyramid is building your, your APIs. But what I meant to say was design first. It's cool. I'm just making sure like it's been interesting asking people that question and you get different looks at it. So, okay, go on, design first. I think design first lets you do that, right? Like this upfront collaboration. So you don't have to have like a huge team of developers building services. There's just a natural appeal to that. Like a CTO would like to just see what it kind of looks like and be able to just collaborate on on something and say, can you just take a look at this and, and then talk to somebody from, from a different team and say, do you think you can interact with this? Does this make sense? So that's a, it's a very nice conversational tool. Whereas when you go code first, uh, you don't have that. The organization is very different. The profile of that organization that does one versus the other is very different. Code first organization is something, it's an open source kind of model where like people are free to change things in other people, other teams' repositories and things of that nature to make sure that things work in the right direction. I'm not trying to make it so that it's like a, again, going back to cowboy code where like you just go change randomly something. It obviously has to go through the vetting process, but it happens at the code level, not at the API interaction design level. Yeah, most people call this like an inner source approach, which I would 
generally argue is, you know, another one of those transformational things you see with API development. Correct. So I think whatever suits your organization, that makes sense. Like how your organization collaborates, how your organization works. Like one has trade-offs over the other. Having said that, I think I have a strong bias towards the code side of things. And I'll tell you why. The reason I have it is, like I mentioned earlier, my background is from the SOA WSR world. And when I came from there, I was a really hardcore like contract first development. Like let's define the contract, then we can think about everything else. And of course, uh, granted that the tooling was not there at that time, but but when you have that kind of uh, an approach, what happens is there's like when you have a mismatch between like a way to describe your API and what the code that that you can use to generate from that description, when you have an impedance mismatch, like, like data types is a good example. Like uh, if you take, for example, like simple example I can give you right now in open API. If you take JSON schema, for example, you have the ability to define like union types. And if you take that and translate that to a concept in in like a C-based language like Java or C sharp, there's just no way you can you can make that transition. You have to make some some kind of translation that that maps that into what your code represents. So from that perspective, right? you have to service the lowest common denominator, if you will. Like, what is the projection of this particular description and contract in terms of the, the ecosystem of languages or, or tooling that we use? Like, if you're using TypeScript, it might be a different thing. If you're using C-based languages, it's a different thing. Yeah, I, I tend to say, like, the API design version of object-oriented is, like, object-oriented for dummies, right? Like, you got to keep it as simple as possible because you can't use any fancy stuff that might be language centric. Yeah. So go on. Exactly. That's the the conundrum that I, I ran into when I was uh, when I came from that background. So I just take that approach that I prefer the approach if you will that if your code is working a certain way it's the truth, right? There's no denying that. So I'm biased towards that because of that reason. But I see value in both sides. There's a trade-off, right? It's what's most appropriate for your organization. Like to take the flip side, right? The advantage of something like design first, you can quickly mock up something. Like you can mock a service. That's just not possible, right? Like you have to build out your, like you need like 10 developers to build your service to be able to do that. I mean, there's, there's a trade-off for everything. So I would say just, just that the Spring Fox is a product of the environment that I was in. It really worked well for that environment, and it may not really work for every environment. Yeah, that's why I ask your opinion, because I think you know there's a lot of opinions out there. It doesn't mean any, any one of us is right. I think one of the contrasting examples for me and why I definitely, it's funny, like OpenAPI and kind of the birth of that out of Swagger and kind of, you know, Tony Tam's helping get that off the ground and then kind of going off to do something else. And it became the communities, became the Linux foundations, was also very much a story of transitioning from what was originally a code-first approach into a something that's become a design-first approach. And, you know, being part of that founding group, it was interesting to see it. The kind of stories behind that are like teams going off and working for months to develop an API, showing it to somebody for the first time who's going to consume it, based on some agreed upfront document version 
and then going, this doesn't work at all. This isn't what I needed. And like the horrified executives that like, we spent how much to do that, right? As we're like, I mean, th there's certainly bad stories from the past too on like, you know, I mentioned before, like governance boards where like, you know, you end up stuck for a month trying to get something out because you got to wait for somebody to, to green light it. I lean toward like, I'd rather find a way to solve that problem and avoid all that wasted development effort because it's the worst feeling in the world versus, you know, accepting status quo and just, you know, kind of going with what it is. But yeah, there's some ideology in there for sure. The classic problem we're trying to solve is like building walls and making sure they meet in the corner, right? So <laughs> we want to make sure that we meet. We don't want it to be like, oh my goodness. <laughs> so there's different ways that you can do that, right? Like there are these... Um, they're called CDCs, client-defined contracts. That's a development approach that you say, hey, I'm going to define my my contract and it can be a different form. It doesn't have to be open API, but now even open API is supported. But the original, I think it was Martin Fowler again. Although I think Netflix kind of pioneered that one to some extent with their platform in that all the client devices would define what they want the contract to be based on some superset. Yeah, it's this framework called PAX, E-S-E-T-S. And that's that's what pioneered it. And there's different other flavors of that, that contract. But the idea is that you define your contract and then the builders of that API actually try to build that contract and say, do I think I, that makes sense or not? And if it doesn't, then I'm going to reject your... It goes really well with the GitHub workflow. That's another approach. Rather than having a governance tool, you have like a very like a grassroots tool which is built on the the developer workflow so so if your organization is very developer oriented then that's a good approach to do it as well so and that also works with all the contracts as well so i've worked with pax a bit too and i suppose it probably depends on the environment you're in kind of the business style i tend to like i've done a lot of saas related stuff and so in the SaaS world, like, you know, the design first stuff seems to always fit in well, but you could certainly see if you're in. I love design first. I mean, I don't want to like short sell that. I, I love, I was like a flag bearer for that for a long time. Became fairly unpopular for that, but that was a sign of the times, not at the sign of the, the approach. So, Totally topic change. I'm curious your thoughts. You know, we hear a lot that like, making APIs usable and kind of easy to understand and easy to use and all this is great. And that there's, you know, some people just go, well, just write great documentation. Some people say, well, you know, just make it, you don't, shouldn't have to have documentation. It should practically explain itself. Like, you know, how do you kind of approach these things in making usable stuff? Like I see it as three different pillars and there's a continuum of how much you want to invest in those. The first pillar is, of course, uh, having a definition. It's like pretty much everybody, it's like a low-hanging fruit. Everybody does it. Like an open API specification is, is pretty much everybody has that. Yeah, and we mentioned before you could do that up front or you could end up co-genning that after you've built the service. But by the time you're thinking about documentation, which is usually too late, you have that spec. Okay. Yeah, the spec actually what it does is it just allows you to 
to create like a REPL for yourself, like if you will, like not really the traditional sense, but on the web, just gives you a playground. You just have the definition. You can create a mock, you can create a, like a big swagger page. The criticism is of course, this wall of APIs, but, but it is a, it is a REPL. It's a, it's an easier curl than, than what you have on the command line. So this that aspect, I think that's pretty much table stakes. A little bit more mature organizations really need developers, like what they call developer portal, right? Like you have a portal and you have all your documentation in place and you say explicitly, okay, this is how you authenticate. This is how typically all the responses and it's really nice prose. It's not really, you can mix it with some interaction and execution, but it's really nice prose for somebody you can just give and say, this is how you you interact with the service and this is the service. These are the capabilities. And there's no substitute for pros. Uh, if you, for knowledge transfer, for, it's not enough to, to just give somebody the open API and say, okay, here you go. There, there might be some fields in there that allow you to do that, but, but really you need to describe the deficiency, if you will, of just the spec is that there is no representation of a workflow. There is no way for you to say, how do I get from going in front of the, like if you're buying coffee, if you're standing in line to taking your coffee delivered, like there are maybe 10 steps in the way where you interact with somebody over the counter. And there's no way to capture that. There's no way for you to say, after you place the order, you get a ticket. After you take the ticket, go to the the counter and pass it to the person making your your coffee, and then you and then you hand it to them, and then they they look at it. Oh, this is your coffee, and they give it back to you. So all of these interactions, there's no way to represent that in Open API. There's only ways to say you do this, you'll get this response. You do this, you'll get this. Response. So there's that whole aspect of communicating that whole workflow, which is something that's imperative in the documentation. Otherwise, it's just tribal knowledge. People just know that I have to call this API after this, this API. So that's very important, right? So that's the second pillar. And I think the third pillar, which is often like the Richardson maturity model for REST services, it always comes up as the, the one thing that people say, okay, I don't need that. So it's the hypermedia capability. People say hate EOS and stuff like that, but but really what it's telling you is that it's giving you control information. In addition to data, it's telling you what you can do next. I think that's important to give you runtime guidance. Like there's design time guidance in terms of documentation, there's runtime guidance. So a lot of people don't do that. There's different reasons for that. There's mostly the reason I attribute it is to tooling, but people have a way to get around that by different ways that they come up with. They might have conventions that are part of their API. They might have different ways that they establish those behaviors. But but I think it's important to think about those things, the third pillar as well, when you're talking about describing holistically the API. Cool. You triggered an old memory. I had to go look it up when you were describing the uh, the API flow using the coffee shop. It was like rest bucks. Where do I remember that from? I had to look it up. It's the old Rest in Practice book from 2010. Yeah. Wow. Jeez. That's also a thought worker. Uh, Weber. Yeah. Robinson. Yeah. I think he was a he was also a fellow InfoQ contributor way back when. Oh, memories seems to be uh, the theme of the day. So 
appreciate you sharing memories with us and giving us uh, your take on some of the how to build great APIs. Anna, thanks so much for helping out today. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for having me. I mean, when you have something passionate, you're passionate about it, it's enjoyable to talk with other folks that, that share your same passion. So, so thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. The hardest part about the show is not talking for hours and trying to wrap it up in a reasonable amount of time so it's listenable. I could do this all day. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Dilip, well, I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you in the next one. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, Look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you.